Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Okay, everyone, welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm really excited about this episode. I'm your host, Nina Pantic, joined by Irina Falcone, as always. Hey, guys, how's it going? And our special, uh, our special guest is Elliot Loney. Elliot, welcome. Guys, thanks so, so much for having me on the show. Um, I've been wanting to come on here for a long time, so the fact that I'm finally here, I'm very excited and pumped to get stuck into it. Oh, I'm flattered. This is a great way to start. It's exactly <laughs> no, what I expected. I- I'm very excited. I've got to say, Arena's microphone is unbelievable. It was so crisp when she spoke into the microphone just now. We absolutely love hearing that because there's been a lot of people that actually would disagree with you. So I'm happy you're saying that. No, it sounds unbelievable. So um, now that the formalities are out of the way. Yeah, we're off, to, we're off to a roaring start. So for people that might not know your name, which I don't believe, um, you are a former tennis player turned into an impersonator of tennis players and celebrities, a comedian, and you have a YouTube channel and you just launched a podcast. So I want to start off by asking you, how has the grind been during quarantine? Um, it's been kind of strange because I guess I'm just kind of looking for things to do. Uh, the podcast kind of spawned out of the whole isolation thing. So um, I guess for me, it was just, I hate to say it, I've been saying it 24-7, but this is such an unprecedented time. It's a really taboo phrase and a word, but it, it is. There's no other way to describe it. So I guess I was just looking for things to do and I thought about doing a podcast. Obviously, I can't do comedy shows or live shows. Um, I don't play tennis too much anymore, but obviously I still love the game. So um, whenever I can have a hit, I, I try to get out in the court, which has been good. I, I was able to have a hit a couple of weeks ago, which I absolutely adored. Um, but, yeah, I've just been trying to keep myself busy. So I've been doing some strange things in isolation, I'm sure, as we all have. Strange things what do you mean by that well as you know uh, I do a lot of impersonations so I guess sometimes my alter egos come out have some pretty strange conversations uh, by myself and if the door is closed or just ajar if there is another person in the opposite room they probably think I'm a full-blown schizophrenic and uh, might have to call the feds on me but uh, (laughs) uh, it's just how I operate it takes confidence confidence though to do what you do but you've also spent quarantine at least from what it looks like from the outside with some of your closest friends like Novak and Rafa and Kyrgios because you've been making this video like tennis players in isolation is one of your most recent ones how do you get in character for this kind of thing um I guess like it's it's a a tough question to, to to answer because like I've kind of always been like that um even when I was a little kid, I was impersonating friends and teachers and stuff like that. Um, so it's, I've always, I'm, I haven't really known anything different, if that makes sense. So um, some characters are a lot easier to, I guess, immerse myself in, like Rafa, for example, because I have been impersonating him for so long. Um, but I guess um, some other ones, they might take a little bit more just to zone in. But usually um, I feel like I've been doing it for long enough now that uh, I try to just like snap into it and, I'm there, you know, so. 
Is Rafa your favorite one to impersonate then? Um, probably in terms of the tennis players, yes. Um, I guess because it's like the one that I'm most known for maybe. Um, but in terms of like all of my impersonations, probably not. But um, definitely for, for tennis, I would say, yeah. You've been around the tennis scene, though. I've seen you at tournaments. Have you met Rafa? Has he given you any feedback? And if not, are you nervous about it? Um, I've kind of met him a couple of times. Like, obviously, I've got so much respect for him. And um, uh, he seems like such a nice guy. Um, and the only interaction I had with Rafa was I was in Montreal 2017 at the Rogers Cup. I was doing some content for them. And uh, I was playing a game called Heads Up with all the players. I played um, uh, like Heads Up with I think Dimitrov and uh, Songa and uh, Kyrgios and like quite a few players that were coming through. And they were coming through one by one. And anyway, Rafa strolls up. And so I puff my chest out and I'm thinking, oh, here we go. Um, all right, I'll just play it cool. I was like, uh, g'day, Rafa, Rafa, is it? Yeah, nice to meet you, mate. Um, Elliot Laney, how you doing, mate? Um, all right, so we're just going to play this game here and um, – and, you know, he was, he was looking at me all like, you know, very serious. And then I was like, all right, mate, so we're ready to start. And then straight away, the um, film crew from Montreal ran across. They're like, hey, hey, we, we got the exclusive with Rafa, okay? Can we have it? You don't have it. Can, can we? And Rafa just looked at me and he goes, ah, I'm sorry, little guy, but I cannot, I cannot do it. But I'm going to see you very soon. And all the best, okay? And like shook my hand and walked off. He was so apologetic and so nice. And I was devastated because I was hoping that I'd have maybe a couple more minutes just to be like, hey, by the way, do you know, have you seen, Yeah, you know? <laughs> oh my I'm God, sorry. Karina's lost it. <laughs> <laughs> it must feel so good to make people laugh though. I just think that's such an incredible skill, not just for like a dating app line in general, just like in life, it's so good. Oh, oh my God, no, she's crying. I love it. I never thought I would actually be crying on a podcast. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's almost good that you haven't. Like, oh, it's so it's so good that you're able to just whip that out. Like, you know, it's, just, it's like a performance. It takes such confidence because I'm Serbian and I can't even do a Serbian accent. Well, people ask me. Uh, it's it's funny you bring up the Serbian accent thing because when I do Novak Djokovic. Um, I'm sorry, often... guys. I literally cannot. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Pull it together. This kind of reminds me of that Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, oh, oh yeah. Stop laughing. They're so is the... I'm glad you're comparing uh, me to Roger Federer. I appreciate that. Yeah. Whew. Well, okay. You But I'm very good at You know, your serve is incredible. I've seen you lace backhand lines all the time. I want to hit a couple of backhands cross court with you, no problem. We can we can slap them around the oh court. Oh my goodness! Arena, pull oh. it together. Absolutely. I love it. <laughs> Have you ever thought about doing Roger or like other players? Oh my goodness! I feel like some are, yeah. women would be hard, but I feel like some of the guys there's room there. Absolutely, I'll, I'll um I'll answer that question in just a second. But I'm sorry, I realized yeah. I went off track. I was talking about the Serbians. Yeah, yeah, Serbians. Serbians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's hear that first. Sorry, I lost oh, it too. Arena couldn't. Arena lost it. No, yeah. That, it's all right. It's it's hilarious. First, just try not to do Rafa for the remainder. If you just want me to like, not cry of laughter, I'd appreciate it. Um, but with with Novak Djokovic, like uh, a lot of people, are like how do you do Novak? Do you just do a Serbian accent? But I was, I was trying. I was said in a recent podcast I did as well. It's like with Novak, it, he's kind of got so many 
little intricacies with his voice because obviously tennis is a global sport and he spent a lot of time traveling as a kid and playing tournaments and stuff. So I feel like his accent isn't a Serbian accent. It's more like a Novak Djokovic accent. So there are some words that he says with a Serbian type accent, but then other words he says that only Novak would say in that particular way. So um, he's a tough one to impersonate, probably one of the hardest ones to impersonate. A lot of studying had to go into that because I, I agree with you 100%. It's not just a plain Serbian accent. There's so much in there, so much flavor. So much flavor. But to answer your second question, um, I have tried to impersonate some other players. I've recently added Dominic Team to the, to the list. I think at the moment there's Dominic Team, uh, Novak Djokovic, Andy Murray, Nick Kyrgios, Bernard Tomic. Um, Jim Courier. <laughs> Jim Courier, um, who I have met. Uh, uh, um, he's been on the podcast I just I just never I think it takes balls to impersonate some of these guys all these guys yeah well absolutely well um, Jim is a very a very focused and uh, professional man um, I don't think he had much time for my nonsense I, I met him one time uh, at the Australian Open and we'd just done a broadcast um, I, I was impersonating Andy Murray live for a cross for Channel 7 and I saw him in the in the cafe at, at Australian Open, and I was like, oh, "Hey, hey, Jim, um, I, I don't know if you know, but I was the guy doing the Andy Murray impression. Like, I was just live with you on, on Channel Seven, like like twenty minutes ago, and literally, he was like, "Oh, uh, hey, um, can I can I just can we like take a step back right about now? Like, I um I just gotta like order some food right about now. Um, I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just trying to like get into my inner processes right about now for this next matchup. So if like, you could just like, maybe like, you know, we'll talk later, but not right now. Okay. Not right now. And I was like, all right, mate, no dramas. And like, (laughs) that's brutal. So with that, like experience like that from that, is that where you get the impersonations from that one experience? Well, yeah there's definitely parts of his impersonation that I based off that experience because like, I still like Jim. I have a lot of respect for Jim. I think he was a fantastic player and he, and he contributes a lot to the sport, but my personal experience with him on that day, I got the impression. I was like, well, I know he's probably not like that. Maybe he was having a bad day, maybe, you know, whatever. But I was like, but I'm going to use that. And I'm going to, I'm going to drum that up a hundred times. Uh, and <laughs> so you have. that's where what well, I have. And that's where the aloofness and the arrogance comes from when I impersonate him. Because I know he's not like that, but because of that experience, I was like, well, you know what? Screw it. That's gonna be him. That's uh, that's what I, that's what I'm gonna do when I impersonate him. You have perfectly sourced material. I don't that's a, that's the best defense. So you just uh, you just launched a podcast, I guess a quarantine podcast, but probably gonna be something you continue. And you had Nick Karius on. I know you had the nasty Kakanakis on first, but Nick Karius' episode blew up. I know that we at tennis.com covered it, um, probably much to Nick's chagrin, but that's my life. Um, how'd your friendship with Nick come about? And why are you wearing a sideways hat when you impersonate him? <laughs> Because he was spot on. He was spot on. I was like, why are you wearing a sideways hat? (laughs) He's right. He's right. Um, I guess with all my impersonations, similar to what I was saying with Jim before, um, I think like a lot of the the comedy is in the absurdism of it. Um, And I think like it's not just funny to do an impersonation. It's kind of like with Rafa when I do the, "Ah," like he doesn't do that. 
I've never seen Rafa do that, but it's funny to add that in because it, it's almost like my own little signature to the impersonation. I like to give a subtle signature for every single person I impersonate that only Elliot Loney does. Um, so that's something that I try to try to do with my impressions. But with Nick, um, I guess uh, we met, I couldn't tell you how long ago. Um, we probably started speaking more, I reckon, in about 2015, but I'd known him for a long time in terms of, because I've been such a tennis fan for so long, I knew that he was a really promising junior and a lot of my mutual friends had talked about him and said he was on the way up and how talented he was and all this kind of stuff. Um, but then I guess we just got along really well. Um, obviously, Thanasi and I are really close and um, I probably started spending more time with him because of Thanasi. Um, and, uh, yeah, he was just always really kind to me and really um, a really good bloke to me. And I guess... Um, yeah, I just I saw a different side to Nick that, that the media portrayed in those early days, especially. And uh, I really enjoyed his company and we still get along like a house on fire now. So, um, yeah, I've got a lot of time for him. I especially liked uh, the part where he talked about obviously drinking and then playing tennis and all that, like all that stuff that happens behind the scenes that people don't know about. I mean, these are normal human beings who have he's like 25 years old. He has friends on tours who wants to have a good time. That is relatable content. And the part yeah. where he was, yeah, it just it just kind of seems natural. But, like, you also play tennis. Have you ever hit with any of these pros? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've hit with Nick. I've hit with Thanasi. I've hit with Devonar. Um, you can hang? Pretty much all the Aussie guys. Sorry? You can hang? Because I think you're, I mean, from what I understand, like, you were legitimately chasing a pro career at one point or thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, I played, uh, I, I started tennis pretty late. Like, I was 11 when I picked up my first racket. So, that is late for a tennis player. Um, so I peaked late as well. So like I, I, I played representative tennis here in Australia. So I, I played state tennis. So I represented Victoria when I was about 17. And, um, when I was about 18, 19, I started playing challenges and futures, just trying to get a point, but I never got an ATP point, but I played Charlie uh, challenges and qualifiers, um, that kind of stuff, but I never made a main draw. I never got a point. So I kind of just gave it away, but obviously, um, still love the sport and love to play, but um, yeah, I just didn't have what it takes, I think, to make it at the, um, you know, top echelons of tennis. It's pretty hard to make it in. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Hey guys, Irina here. Today we have comedian Elliot Loney and you gotta keep listening because he legitimately made me cry of laughter. We love to ask transition questions as in like literal life transitions. How do you go from chasing a ATP point to becoming a comedian? Is that because you were always funny in high school? I, I mean, I get that you were the, uh, the class clown maybe, but then like how do you turn that into what is now pretty much a career? Um, well, yeah, it's, 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 it's a, it was an interesting route. Um, so, yeah, I played, uh, obviously played tennis, and then I was thinking about making a comeback, and I was on my way to a house party on a skateboard with a whole group of mates thinking I was pretty cool. And I think I had a beer in my hand at the time, and I was making my way down this hill, and um, one of my mates was, like, veering around this corner, and he's like, uh, there's a car coming, there's a car coming, and I freaked out. And I, like, veered onto this, um, like, gutter, this, like, on the nature strip. But as I came off, I fell, hit the pavement, and I felt a pop and I was like, what was that? And 
then like a searing pain that like shot all the way down my arm and I knew something was wrong and I somehow peeled my shirt off and like there was like 10 of my mates with me and they all sort of looking at me. I'm like, what's happened? Is it all right? Is it all right? My, my arm was like dangling, like, like it popped out of the socket backwards. Um, so most shoulder dislocations, they pop out forwards, but mine popped out backwards. So I was in a crazy amount of pain and the nearest hospital was probably like, you know, 25 minutes, half an hour away. So one of my mates uh, ran back to his car or skated back to his car, um, went and picked me up, drove me to the emergency ward. And I think my shoulder was out for about an hour and it was probably one of the most excruciating experiences. So after that, my my arm was never the same in terms of my tennis. Like I, um, I started hitting a good ball. I was doing a lot of practice at the time with a guy who was around 700 ATP um, I called Marvin Barker in singles. So he was a good player and we were, we were training a lot. We were pretty like level in some practice sets. So I thought maybe I can get back on tour and maybe get that point because I'm starting to play okay. But after that, that was it for me. Um, done. Yeah. So um, I'm, sure, I'm sure that that was also really tough on you mentally because, I mean, you probably felt like you were right there to get that. You were so close to that point and then to be that close and then have it pretty much taken away from you. I mean, how was... How was it dealing with that? I mean, I know that a lot of players, when they get some sort of like injury like that, they can go into deep depression mode. I mean, that it can really mess you up. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess for for a while, absolutely. I was really, really devastated because um, I guess like a lot of young people, I didn't really put the future into consideration. Like I never really had a plan B. I was just like, I'm going to be a tennis player. But then I guess when you get older, you start to realize you you become a lot more realistic with your expectations. And I think you become a lot more level headed. And I think I was just almost too optimistic of my own abilities and stuff. And then that really was a reality check for me. I remember like lying in bed, like literally like screaming into my pillow because I was like, I cannot like, what am I going to do in my life? Like, this is all I've known. Like, like, what am I going to do? Um and uh, for, for a long time, it was a pretty dark place. Like for about a month to six weeks, I was like um, doing nothing, like barely left the house. Like I was in a sling. I couldn't move my arm from here to here for, you know, eight weeks. Like I was in a really bad place mentally. And then um, I sort of did a lot of rehab. I was supposed to get a shoulder reconstruction, but I sort of opted to go the more natural route and did a lot of um, just rehab and prehab and stuff. Got my shoulder back to a point where I could have full range of motion and still play social tennis and still go to the gym and stuff. So it's like 95%. It's, it'll never be hundred percent again, but it's like 95% there. Um, but uh, yeah, look, I mean, that was when I sort of thought to myself, I need to try something different. And I started doing prank calls on Facebook just for my, for my mutual friends. Um, not like putting it on YouTube or anything, but I was just like calling people as Morgan Freeman and Dr. Phil and Bear Grylls and just like screwing around. And um, they were getting a lot of traction just within my immediate circles. And one of my mates was doing like video production stuff. And he said, hey, man, like if you ever wanted to film one of these things, my production, I'll help you and we can like do it together. So we shot our first video, which I think was um, Bear Grylls in Camping Store. Uh, it was like a prank call where I was in a raised tent city, which is like a tent, uh, tent shop here in Australia. And uh, I called the store manager whilst I was in the store as Bear Grylls 
So I was like, you know, hello, I'm Bear Grylls and I'm rummaging around the pots and pans and, you know, I don't know where you are. And he was in the store. He's like, where are you, mate? Where are you? I'm like, I'm behind the, the shell, you know, so it's pretty funny. Um, so we did that and that sort of subtly blew up. I think it got like 80,000 views, um, which was like crazy for me at that time. Like I couldn't believe it. Um, and then shortly after that, I dropped a video called Man vs. Metro, which was also a Bear Grylls parody in the city in 2013. And that went super viral. Like that was, I think it got, I think it's almost got 700,000 views now. But at the time, it was the most viewed video in the world for that particular day. So it hit like front page of Reddit and just went psycho. Um, so that blew up. And then as a result of that, I was just kind of like, well, I'm going to start doing more funny videos. So I did that, built up a bit of a following. And then the natural progression from there was stand-up comedy. So here I am. Hmm. Simple, a simple story from, from terrible accident to prank calls. I mean, I remember doing prank calls in colleges and people prank me and they're not famous com comedians or impersonators or have a <laughs> blowed up YouTube channel, but maybe had they kept going because how do you, I mean, when, when, a, when a YouTube blows up, like you said, like the bear girl is one, one of your first ones where you really put in some thought there. What, how does that turn into, I guess, money and fame and like people have so many YouTube channels now with so many hits, but yours are, are unique, of course, but how, how does that turn into like career? Cause you get well, bookings. I think there's two two answers to that question. I think <clears throat> I was very fortunate to do it in 2013, which was like um, YouTube was was kind of in its infancy back then. Like obviously it was still a massive platform, but there weren't as many creators trying to vie for people's attention. Um, so I think it was interesting. You could count on one hand the people that were doing what I was doing in Australia at that time. So that helped me in the early stages, I think, cultivate my audience and build a bit of a pathway for myself. I think it would be a lot more difficult today to do that. Um, but having said that, um, maybe the risk to reward ratio is probably higher today as well. Um, like uh, if you take a big risk and it goes crazy viral today, it goes more viral today than it ever could have gone back in 2013. Um, so I guess there's pros and cons for each side of the coin there, but um it kind of just happened for me because I had that really good start with Man vs Metro and then I was able to take that, harness that and um, use the audience that I initially got from that and build it into something much bigger. So that's what I tried to do. I was just really consistent with my content. I was making a lot of videos um, and uh, I wasn't really caring about the, the quality too much. I was just like quantity, 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 quantity. Whereas now I'm more about quality, but I think back then it was all about throwing darts and, I'd throw 10 darts and all like nine of them would miss and then one would hit the bullseye and I'd do it again. And that was the way that I would uh, do it. So, yeah. So out of, out of curiosity, I mean, I really don't know like what it would be like schedule wise for a comedian. So tell us like in the next couple of months in the next year, I mean, how, how long before do you get bookings and, can you just show up? Is it like a three day thing? Is it a, you know, just the night of an event? I mean, as a tennis player, you've been playing tennis for so long. I mean, it's a little different because you have to plan so far ahead. And sometimes it's like, Oh, we're going to this country that next, you know, I'm just curious what your schedule looks like as a comedian. Yeah. Well, uh, it's, it's kind of funny because comedy is, in a way, a lot like tennis. I mean, you're by yourself. You, you're thinking through a lot of things. You, you're, um, 
if you have a great gig, you, you feel amazing. If you have a terrible gig, it's like taking a hard loss. You feel terrible. Um, and, you, you know, sometimes you might have a mentor who's like a coach um, that you can bounce ideas off and like game plays, I guess. So there's a lot of like, there's a big correlation, I think, between the two. So it's, it's almost ironic that I am doing comedy. But to answer the schedule question, I guess it's kind of like, um, for me, I do a lot of corporate gigs because I'm impersonator and, and impersonators are, I think, a lot rarer to come by than there's a lot of comedians, but there's not too many impersonators and especially ones that do it well. So, um, yeah, I've been able to, to, to navigate the corporate market pretty well. Um, and that's been beneficial to me because it's like, it's a lot, of, I think it's easier than doing all the clubs and bars and pubs, which you have to do as well but not as frequently if you're doing the corporate scene and there's money in the corporate scene. Um, and unless you're selling out shows, um, sometimes it can be hard to make a good profit doing stand-up unless you have a big following and you can sell out shows. So um, there's a grind aspect to it as well because like it's like heading to the practice court. You have to go to bars and clubs and do open mic nights, which is what they're called. And typically comedians do maybe three to five minutes in front of a really small crowd um, you know, I've done gigs to three people in the back alley of a basement on a milk crate with no microphone, like to, you know, full, full arenas with 5,000 people watching, like, you know, um, there's, I've done all sorts of gigs. So, um, I guess, yeah, the schedule is, is, is a hard one to navigate, especially now because of COVID. Um, I don't know what my schedule is going to look like, but I guess, I got to just try and use this time productively and write new jokes and try some new impersonations out. And I guess when all the dust settles, I'll get back out there and um, try and do some, test some new material and do some corporates again. So other than obviously people losing it and crying on a podcast, I mean, what would you say is like your favorite part of being a comedian and being out there in front of 5,000 people or in a back alley on a milk crate? Um, I guess it's like a character, but it definitely is character building. Like I, I honestly think as uh, uh, as um, as ridiculous as this may sound, like it has made me a better person in terms of like I was probably more more judgmental before I started doing stand up comedy, but um, I think once you once you get that the humbling experience of having your first bomb, there's there's nothing more um, character building than that. Like if you tank in front of thousands of people and um, you're standing on stage for 10 minutes and no one laughs at a joke um, that builds character like you wouldn't believe. And you can't, you can't get that from a textbook. So I think that's something that I'll always be grateful for in comedy, but like, you know, made me more empathetic towards other performers. And, um, you know, nowadays I think when I see someone who's starting out to a, do a bad gig, I'm probably the first person to get around them when they come off stage and, tell them to keep their head up, you know what I mean? Because I've, I know what that feels like. So um, from that respect, I think, yeah, that's that's probably one of the things I've, I've learned and observed in comedy, yeah. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. 
Hey everyone, you're listening to the Tennis.com podcast with special guest comedian Elliot Loney. Stick around because Novak Djokovic shows up to sign off this episode. I can't really imagine you completely flopping. I guess I could see how maybe things could go wrong in the beginning, you know, when you only have three or four or five minutes. And a lot of it seems like you have to memorize a lot of stuff, which to me seems not the hardest, but one of the many hard things. I really cannot imagine you flopping, but I guess it is like tennis, like you do get, you do take the losses and some of them can be in front of so many people. Yeah, I guess it, it also depends on the, on the, um, the situation. I mean, you know, like tennis, you could come up against someone who on the, on the, in the head to head, you think, Oh, this guy's going to absolutely chop this, this other dude. And then they get on court and they, they might be carrying a couple of niggling injuries or they might be, you know, battling some demons off the court and might not be there mentally. And then they lose the match and you're like, what happened there? But there's something going on behind the scenes that you don't know about. So, um, I mean, look, I've done a lot of great gigs as well. Um, where I've had like, you know, I've been fortunate to have like a couple of standing ovations and, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you see stuff like that and you're like, this is the best thing in the world. But then obviously the losses are really hard to take. But I did do one particular gig where uh, it, it like, it, it like, it like fundamentally changed me as a person. Like it almost, like I felt like I was rewired after that. I did a gig at um, Eddie Had Stadium in Australia, which is like, uh, it's a big, it's a big arena. It's like, a, it's like a stadium where people, like we play AFL sports matches there and stuff. It's called Marvel Stadium now today. Um, but I went there and it was like, a, I think like 3,000 or 4,000 people for the AC2 Congress, which is like a political gig. And the former Prime Minister of Australia was there and like it was a big deal. And um, I was impersonating uh, another former Prime Minister, a guy called Tony Abbott here in Australia, who I don't know if you're familiar with Tony Abbott. You guys know Tony Abbott? I do. <laughs> so I was like, oh, great. <laughs> you know, it's nice. Um, so I was impersonating Tony Abbott, but for, for whatever reason in the itinerary, I think the organizer thought it'd be a good idea to have it as a surprise. So usually in a corporate sense like this or a big arena gig like this, where there's tables and lots of people stakes are high on the run sheet, they'll be like, Oh, and at this time we have a comedian who's going to be doing this. They just had like special guest. So, um, we had the Melbourne symphony orchestra, which is like a huge uh, string quartet like playing violins and everything like that and um the band struck up all the instruments and uh i walked out on stage and uh i was dressed as tony abbott and i just went joke after joke after joke to the cluttering of cutlery times three thousand. like all i could hear was like the murmurs of the crowd and to make matters worse there was this huge like movie camera that was um, zooming in on my face because some some of the views of the people in the room was obstructed by big pillars, stone pillars. So my face was plastered on these huge projectors that were like strewn all throughout this auditorium. And as I was tanking, the camera was zooming in on my face and I started to sweat profusely. So I had like sweat beating down my face <laughs> as I was tanking and going down in flames and like, I just remember uh, 10 minutes went past. I was probably just about to finish and I was like, my name's Tony Abbott. And there was this sigh that started on one side of the room that just ended on the other side of the room. And I realised that none of the jokes had context because they didn't know who I was impersonating and they must have just thought I was some drunken idiot 
who literally just like made his way onto the stage after a few drinks. Because moments before I made walked up on the stage, the, the Prime Minister of Australia made this unbelievable speech, basically got a standing ovation. And then I walked up. <laughs> so I was sitting backstage, rocking back and forth. I felt like Schmeagel after he dropped the precious. I was sitting there going, no, 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 stupid fat officers. No. Just rocking back and forth, just staring at my shoes. And I feel this hand that just drapes across my shoulder. I look up and it was the busboy and he had a dirty plate in his hand. He was like, don't worry, Elliot Loney, mate. I still think you're funny. <laughs> Some consolation. Wow. That sounds oh like it goodness. wasn't really your fault. I mean, it wasn't really your fault. Like, it's yeah, that's bad, though. I think, yeah, it was a little bit to do, like, maybe a little bit my fault and a little bit theirs. Obviously, now that um, that was quite a few years ago now. I think that was, like, six or seven, you know, about six years ago now. But um, now whenever I do a gig, I'm like, I want you to introduce me as the comedian. It has to be in the run sheet that I'm a comedian. People need to be – because. With comedy, people need to be prepared to watch comedy. Otherwise, they're like, what is this? Um, you can learn so, so much more from your losses. They always say that, right? Like in tennis and any sport, yeah. like anything, anything. It's so true. True That's words it. never have been spoken. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But do you, also you would have learned, you played a lot of tennis as well. Like you would have learned a lot from your losses for sure, more so than, than your, yeah. yeah. Irina, tell us uh, about your losses. No, okay. <laughs> Oh, trust me, there's some days where I'll still be rocking in my bed, just, you know, shaking from a loss or, you know, having match points or, yeah. So we've all been there. No, I know the feels. I know the feels. Do you also feel that it's almost in a similar to tennis as well, and that you're only as good as your last match, that you always have that pressure to have to make, like, you just had this amazing, you know, Nick Curious podcast and it was, I don't know, thousands of hits, right? Do you feel the same pressure with comedy and your skits and your impersonations? The next video has to be better. The next, you know, show has to top that show. And it's just like a constant, tennis has that. I'm sure that maybe comedy does too, or at least the YouTube videos. Yeah, I think definitely when I started out, I had like uh, crazy expectations on myself and I used to get really stressed out. Like I'd be like always thinking to myself, man, like I've got to be better than the last one. I've got to be better than this one. Like, I'm, you know, um, but nowadays not so, not so much. I think I'm more just doing it for me. Like I, I try and make the content that makes me happy. I'm not too concerned about hits and views and stuff like that. I'm just kind of like if I'm doing what I'm passionate about, it's going to come through and the, and the views and the hits will come. Um, so I'm not really concerned about likes or followers and stuff like that with my videos, but I just want to make the best content that I can. And if that resonates with people, great. If it doesn't, um, you know, I'll make a video later that will. So as long as I'm staying consistent and doing lots of videos, similar to tennis, if you're playing a lot of matches and you've had a lot of losses, if you keep training, keep grinding, you'll get a massive win and you'll, and it'll make it all worthwhile. So it's the same thing with comedy. It's amazing how you can correlate tennis um, into comedy. And, you know, speaking of tennis and being a comedian, in tennis, you, you have goals. You set yourself, you know, for a tournament to win a certain match or get to a certain ranking. What's, what's the dream? What's the goal for you? Um, for me, my goal is a little bit different because, like, obviously I, I enjoy doing stand-up. I love tennis a lot. I think I'd like to see my podcast grow. I'd love to... I've always wanted to do something with tennis. Um, I'm so passionate about the sport and I love marrying up my comedy with my tennis. I think um, I get the best out of myself when I'm doing that because I'm so passionate about both things. But um, I've written an animated series 
um, called the Prestigious Nine A's, uh, which is uh, basically it's about a brazen high school sports coach who recruits professional athletes from different codes to play for his junior little league football team. Um, uh, and uh, obviously the school turns a blind eye to it because they all they care about is the athletic prowess of the school and stuff like that. It's kind of like Family Guy, The Simpsons, but like completely sports related. Um, so I've been working on that for years, um, put a lot of my own money into it and stuff, been through a lot of um, hits with that. Um, it's just animation is so expensive. So I've applied for a government grant here in Australia to get the show made. Um, so that's probably my biggest... Um, goal in terms of moving forward i'd love to see that show made because i think it's got a lot of potential um and i've already got um like um commitment from a lot of high profile athletes who are going to lend their own voices and their avatars to the show um if it gets up so yeah and i think i'd love to get that made in the u.s so my goal is to start with that show here in australia um just just centered around afl then make another series that's about um cricket here in Australia, maybe another series that's about tennis, then move on to NFL, baseball, basketball, and head over to the States and start um, integrating other sports. So that's that's what I'd love to do. That's my that's my zenith. But aside from that, um, I'm just going to continue doing gags. <laughs> I mean, I de- definitely wish you the best of luck with that. That sounds, I mean, it's, it's unexpected maybe because people might only know you as like the guy who does the impersonate, at least in the tennis world specifically speaking. Yeah. I thought you were going to say like, I'm going to have my own Netflix special. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone wants that, I guess. For me, like, I mean, that'd be awesome. Like I'd love to have a show on Netflix, but um, if, if I was going to choose between my own special on Netflix and my animation, I'd choose my animation every day of the week. So. Yeah, it's all about passion. And and have you, uh, this is another like, this is a bit of off topic, but have you ever met Bear Grylls? Because that was one here. No, nah, never met Bear Grylls. I'm trying to think who I have met in terms of people that I impersonate. Would you want to meet um, him and be like, do you, this is another strange question. Do you ever feel like if you met him, do you ever panic? Like if I met someone and you want to impersonate them, do you ever feel like you're going to choke? That panic of like, what if I don't? <laughs> Or before, no, or before like, like a big show, I don't know. Like tennis choking is the thing where you're just like, and they're like, "That's not very good." Has that ever happened? I don't think it's ever happened to you, but oh no, it definitely has. It definitely has. The funniest thing is one of my good mates. The first time I did a rapper impression, I thought it was pretty good, and I was like, "Hey, that's pretty damn good." Like I'm gonna be able to do this, and he said, "Dude, that sounds nothing like rapper. <laughs> that's the worst rapper impersonation I've ever heard." That's what he said to me. Uh, Look at you so, now. <laughs> Killing Irene. Look at you now. Literally give me kill over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I said to him, I'm pretty sure it does. I think it does sound a bit like rapper. I'm going to give it a go. So You're always uh, going to have haters no matter what you do in life. Uh, well, I'm no longer mates with him. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> does all of your, your stand-up comedy and your skits involve impersonations? Is that the... Oh, yeah. yeah. So I, I obviously tell funny stories and stuff as well and things that I've experienced in my life, but I always try to weave in impersonations into my stand up. Yeah. But um, I'd love to do a show where I'm maybe not doing impersonations the whole time. But for me, um, I think uh, it's a really easy way to uh, relate to an audience and get, get some good laughs because um, I guess it's like a unique skill that I have that a lot of comedians don't have. So I think, um 
I've got to utilize it. You know what I mean? Like I've got this, I guess this like gift. So I've got to use it to the best of my ability because um, I guess I know that there's a lot of comedians that I've spoken to that would love to be able to do impersonations. Um, and there's a lot of comedians I speak to that I'd love to be able to do some of the things that they do that I can't do. So um, I guess you got to focus on your strengths, play to your forehand, as they say. It does feel like a talent <laughs> that you can't really like make, like you can't force it almost like uh, in a way, like Nick Kyrgios' ability to like hit tweeners and these crazy trick shots, like that's mm. talent. That's something that he wasn't taught. And I guess impersonations, you can't, I mean, maybe you could learn it, but you don't, you haven't had to. It's something you have. That's really cool. Yeah, it is really cool. Um, and I think my attitude towards it is like, yeah, look, I've, I don't have to do this stuff. Like I don't have to make videos. I could just, you know, do a desk job right now. Like I could go and get a job, but like I, I feel like I've, as I said, I've got this skill and I almost feel like it's like a duty of mine to try and um, brighten up people's days when I can because I, I occasionally get messages on my Facebook page or my Instagram from someone who's like, hey, man, I'm going through a real dark time at the moment. Like this happened to my family or it's happened to um, someone I care about and I'm, I'm not feeling very good at the moment and your videos changed that. Like it made me smile, made me happy when the chips were down. And like when I get messages like that, I'm like, well, if I'm able to affect someone like that who I don't even know and have a positive impact in their life, like a butterfly effect that hopefully makes them get back on the railroad tracks. And that's what I've got to continue doing because I'm, I'm, um, you know, trying to make people happy. And that's always been something that I feel makes me the happiest. You've also turned around Irina's day. I think making her laugh that hard has changed. <laughs> so turned her day <laughs> I really didn't think I would cry today. I didn't think I would cry of laughter, but <laughs> I mean, you've changed my life, Elliot. Thank you. I was, I was going through a hard time. So thank you for that. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure um, talking with you and um, just keep making the world smile because you're great at it. So keep it oh. up. Thanks. My, my heart's smiling right now. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. And um, no, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, it's been awesome. And um, I've got another podcast coming out really soon um, with Alex Demonar. If, if your listeners are interested, um, that's, that's going to be there on the Elliot Learning YouTube channel. All right. Well, thank you again. Like it's been, as, as Arena said, it's been so much fun and such an honor and I'm glad we got some of your time. No worries. No worries. And if you want me to wrap it up, is any any other impersonation tennis players? I can wrap I can wrap it up. Whatever you like. <laughs> I mean, a dealer's choice. You can choose whatever. Okay. Well, I I mean, I definitely want Novak. Yeah. Sure. All right. I'll just grab him. Hey, Novak. You know, and uh, I'm very happy to be here on the tennis uh, podcast with you guys. You know, and uh, you are almost as good looking as me. So you know. Uh, you're very, very fantastic ladies. And uh, I know Arena has an unbelievable backhand cross court. I've seen her on the practice court and it's uh, an incredible shot, but it's uh, not as good as my forehand line. So, you know, uh, you are good, but you are not the greatest. And uh, my own arrogance gives me confidence. And with that, I would like to say uh, congratulations for a great show and all the very best, but not too good. You know, not as good as me. So have a great day. From the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, this has been the Tennis.com Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay caught up. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app, as well as Tennis.com slash podcasts. You can also see the videos of our episodes 
on Tennis Channel's YouTube page and Tennis.com's Facebook page. We're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. We'd like to thank our team, editor and audio designer and video editor, Christina Koseva, producers Alexa March and Sean O'Malley, and executive producers Shelby Coleman, Kyle Einhorn, and Andy Chu.